All right, everybody. Good afternoon. Uh, this is Kate. This is Jen. And we are here with a very exciting guest. I'm so pleased and proud uh, to bring to you of the National what Parks. National National Historic Parks. Nas- Nas- What's the official title? National Park. I want to say society, and that's not right. Officially part of the National Park Service, but the, the park Service. name is Valley Forge National Historical Park. Thank you. Here we go. Mm. I am so pleased and proud. You want me to take that again? No, no, this is fine. This is quirky and fun. (laughs) I am so pleased and proud to bring to you from the Valley Forge National Historic Park and the National Park Park Service. Service. Thank you. Beth Jongisa coming to us uh, from Valley Forge today. Good morning or good afternoon. How's everybody doing? Oh, super magnificent. We are so, so excited to have you on our show. This is so fun. Right. It is making me a little squirrely. Uh, yes. Please, uh, if you would like to introduce yourself, gosh, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. So I, I am Beth Dungisha, and I'm a park ranger over here at Valley Forge National Historical Park. Um, I've been working here since 2015, so a, a few years now. Um, but I did go to school, actually, to be a park ranger, but not in history. So I'm kind of a little bit of an oddball. My background is in natural resource management. Um, And this just happened to be the place that hired me. So here I am. Uh, Before this, I did volunteer with Valley Forge. I also volunteered with um, John Hines National Wildlife Refuge, which is out here, and the I&M Canal National Heritage Corridor, which is back in the suburbs of Chicago. So I had some experience kind of dabbling here and there, but um, finally landed the gig once we got out here. So here I am. Uh, and I do, you know, not only the history, but a lot of environmental ed and, and that type of stuff, too. That is so interesting. At a historic site like Valley Forge, what is the intersection of natural wildlife conservation and historic conservation? Does one take precedence over the other? Um, because we are a national historical park, the way our charter is written, um, there is a little bit more, I don't want to say more emphasis on the history, but the history, particularly the six months during the Valley Forge winter encampment in 70, 1777 to 1778, is our primary focus. Um, but being part of the National Park Service, we have our little badge here, right? Um, I love the badge. Yeah, it kind of represents everything that we need to protect. and nature and wildlife are on there. So we do need to protect that. Um, A lot of our programming tends to be geared towards the history side. But like this morning, I had a story time program that I was doing for preschoolers up to second grade. And we were talking about trees. I go into a Montessori school on a regular basis and talk about animals there. And um, I have some geology programs and and other things that kind of touch on the sciences. So we, we don't run away from the science, but it isn't the primary focus per se, um, as far as programming goes. And we have a whole natural resource department that makes sure that, you know, we try to limit the invasive species and and make sure everything's healthy for for the ecosystems here. That's marvelous. You're singing my song. All of the programming that you're talking about is what I used to do for our museum. And oh my gosh, I bet you have so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's always an adventure, especially when you get the little kids and they want to tell you all the stories. (laughs) I once had doing time for a quick story. Go ahead, go ahead. So we were passing, we were talking about the fur trade. And one of the items that we pass around for discussion of the fur trade are trade items. And tobacco was one of those. And so we passed around this wad of roped 
leaf tobacco. Um, and, you know, the kids were allowed to smell it and touch it. I always encourage them not to lick it, but you never know. <laughs> um, and so we get around the circle and I'm very proud to say my kids did not know at all what it was. Uh, and I said, okay, this is what they put in cigarettes. This is tobacco. It was very important for this and such reason. And I had this little kid and um, he kind of he sort of looked like the sort of kid who you would expect to come to shirt in like a Budweiser, come to school in a Budweiser t-shirt, you know, you get to have that, all kinds. Um, and everybody deserves an education, so him too. And he shoots his hand up for the first time and he was, he was so proud to tell me something. And he was like, Miss Kate, Miss Kate, is it true that tobacco gives you cancer? Mm. And I was like, you better believe it, buddy. That is definitely true. It's very dangerous if you're chewing it or smoking it. And he shoots his little hand up again. And he, I was like, yeah, go ahead and he says miss kate miss kate my dad says that marijuana kills cancer and that's why it's okay for us to have it oh no <laughs> and like his teacher was right there and i was like so this is a beaver pelt <laughs> they just say all sorts of stuff i love kids oh, so much goodness. wow letting out all the family's secrets yes <laughs> yes Maybe. oh gosh oh gosh uh yeah so anyway <laughs> sorry that will make me laugh until the day i die <laughs> it's been that kid's probably 20 by now she's yes. probably 22 yeah probably oh that's sad i've made myself sad he probably looks back sad. remember that one day i told my teacher that my yeah. parents were so <laughs> yes. it's legal here now so right. it's fine. in michigan it's fine uh, um i'm so sorry i've taken us completely off course jeff you want to jump in with one of the yeah. beautiful questions that we created <laughs> yes so we are um we have been talking um on our show about uh the book the winter of red snow uh which is you know one of the dear america books uh have you by any chance read this book or heard of it before yes i have but not until mm -hmm. you guys reached out oh. i i actually i heard of it as soon as i started here we had a copy of it mm -hmm. um sitting here but i never got the opportunity to read it so once you guys finally reached out i finally sucked it up and read oh. it and it's not too bad <laughs> you, you have to appreciate the speed of these reads like they really tear you through at a good clip mm -hmm. yeah yeah um yeah okay so it's it's very funny it's it's delightful to hear you say that it's not too bad i mean honestly for me like i grew up reading these books um so th these uh hold a very special place in my heart and i will always love them comma however <laughs> uh, upon coming revisiting this book and having um done a little bit more in-depth research for uh when i was working with valley forge a few years ago um I realized that it is uh, perhaps not the most accurate uh, book <laughs> that I, I thought it was uh, as a kid. And there are a lot of uh, probably uh, to you very well known uh, myths or misconceptions about uh, the real history of Valley Forge. And so I think that's what we would love to dive into um, today. And, and keeping in mind that like, you know, these these books have value in the way that they spark this curiosity and love for history. Um, that does not mean that they are above criticism. Um, they get things wrong, but however, we can still, you know, care, for, you know, enjoy the place that they have in our own lives and stuff. Yeah. And I think some of the things that they might get wrong are part and parcel to the larger scope of American education when we're talking about founding fathers. Yes. Yeah. I think this book 
weirdly more than the the Mayflower Pilgrim one, does a lot to kind of encapsulate what we mythologize about our history, uh, but in regards to the the American Revolution. And so, I, yeah, I think this is has a lot of uh, good fodder for us to talk about. Ooh, um, she lays it on with a trowel sometimes. <laughs> yes. I, I will say, though, it does a good job about giving you the feeling, the sense of yes. what was here. You know, Gosh, sometimes it gets the feel wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but in general, like, it, I read it and, yeah, I'm looking at it. It's like, oh, that kid should not be crawling yet, should not be walking up those stairs yet, you know, stuff like that. And, <laughs> you know, little things like that. But in general, I, I got the feeling of being in the encampment. And I think that's, I mean, it's, it's historical nonfiction. They're not promote or, or historical fiction. I'm sorry. They're not promoting it as nonfiction. Actually, you know, yeah, so yeah. You, you take it with a grain of salt and, and um, you know, you, you get excited about it. And then hopefully that mm-hmm. spurs you to do a little bit more research and learn more on yeah. your own and, and find out. And, and Valley Forge in particular is just chock full of myths. Um, in fact, when we filmed our new movies, we, we have a sh- movie short all about the myths of Valley Forge because mm-hmm. there are so many we get. And, and I don't even know that it's a, a reflection on our education system. I think it's just a reflection on the um, pl- publicity <laughs> and uh, the, the campaign to promote some of those myths and how long they've, um, you know, have been around that they've become ingrained in our um you know, our memory. And we think it's the truth and it's not always the truth. So absolutely. Yeah. I mean, some of the sources of some of these myths are in of themselves historical because they come from, uh, you know, almost a century ago. <laughs> um, so, yeah, speaking of that video, uh, and, and this popped in my mind immediately, too, because I remember doing some research for this uh, myths versus reality. And so I knew that this was a topic that is discussed um, at you know, the park. So what are some of the, the, you know, like top five or so myths that, that people uh, perpetuate, you know, unknowingly, you know, this is not something that, you know, people are like meaning to do. It's just people genuinely think that this is what happened because they've been told this. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest one is the weather. Mm. Um, You know, even in the book, they talked a lot about snow and like the first, I think month that Washington marched in, it was snowing every day. And it's like, Probably not. <laughs> we we yeah. actually uh, some a researcher along the way went through and compiled diaries and journals and whatever they could find to basically compile the weather uh, that was here at Valley Forge during the encampment. You know, because back in the day, farmers and other groups, um, inspiring scientists, they were keeping track of that stuff. They had thermometers. They're making observations. So we have records. Um, we know the coldest temperature was six degrees in uh, late December. Um, but you know, it, it warmed up after that. Mm. Yeah. So February, they had uh, some good snowstorms. They, they had a, a one that dumped quite a bit of snow, but most of the snowstorms ended in rain or freezing rain. So then mm. it would melt the next day and then freeze and melt. And, and it was a relatively wet winter, but mainly in the form of rain rather than snow. So instead of twenties and snow, like you kind of see in all the paintings and stuff like that, think forties and rain. And that's mm. more indicative to what Valley Forges, which I think is more miserable than 20s in snow. Like That's when you what I was thinking. Fabric. Yeah. yeah. Or shoes. I mean, one of the primary issues that we come across in this book time and time and time again is how poorly shod, um, and then you're placed with the irony of the father of Abigail being a cobbler. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's doing his best to shoe these men, but, you know, we come across... Um, 
the painter who comes to paint Washington and his generals, whose, of course, name uh, is escaping Charles me. Charles Peel? Right? Charles William Peel? Yeah. yeah yes. Charles William Peel, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Wilson. <laughs> very, thank you. Something with a W. Yeah. Um, so he, even he, as a captain in the Philadelphia Regiment, his toes are poking through his shoes, according to our point of view character. Um, and just... You know, you hear a lot about Hamilton writing to Congress trying to get supplies like shoes and meat. Um, And are those myths or are those things that are based in reality? And that kind of suffering was visited on not only the soldiers, but also the camp followers. So um, it. it a little bit of both. It, it was definitely an issue that was happening. They they were poorly clothed. E- each state or colony was supposed to supply their own troops. You know, some did a much better job with that than others. Um, kind of to put the shoe thing in perspective, I have a friend who works for an outdoor um, uh, supply company. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention names, but I have a friend. For who, example, who something for like REI or possibly. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, <laughs> I've been told that, you know, modern day hiking shoes are made to last 300 to 600 miles. Right. Mm-hmm. If an army oh. is marching up to 20 miles a day, it won't take very long for them to get to that 300 yeah. or 600 miles for modern shoes. You know, back then they didn't know how to repair their shoes. It's kind of a lost art and stuff like that. But you, you, you kind of put that in comparison to our modern gear and just mm-hmm. think how quickly they would go through that. And even if you're a fairly well-supplied colony or, or brigade, getting your stuff in that quickly and up to where it needs to go to an army that's constantly on the move um, is challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you think about it that way, it's like even if they had access to the best modern shoes, they'd still be wearing them out very regularly. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, you know, I, I'm into hiking. So, you know, the Appalachian Trail, mm-hmm. 20, almost 2,200 miles, right? And people mm-hmm. Sorry, are constantly, resupplying their, shoes. Yeah. <laughs> constantly resupplying their shoes. So imagine this army, you know, marching from Boston down to New York to Philadelphia and then mm-hmm. down into the Carolinas. They're, they're pinning Appalachian tri- trail type yeah. distances on their shoes and Absolutely. modern day I, you'd be re- resupplying multiple times. I'm just dying to ask if you've done the Appalachian trail. I haven't done the whole thing. I, okay. I am very much piecemealing sections of it. So I, yeah. um, I basically have from Shenandoah to Delaware water gap done. So. I hear Shenandoah yeah. is the best part. Yeah. So I, I have the Northern part of it and hoping to do another chunk, um, this this spring so get another 35 miles in sorry that is a special interest of mine again i don't hike super Uh, interested in hiking never will do it herself (laughs) (laughs) i'm wearing ultras right now they're like really good hiking shoes and uh they will not go more than 30 yards Mm -hmm. a day that's fine i live in my house (laughs) so anyway that's so exciting um i've got us off track again because that is my no we were talking about just uh shoes yeah and and (laughs) footprints in the snow (laughs) which brings us to the question really of resources uh often in this book washington was relying very heavily on local resources literally taking food out of local children's mouths um, sometimes. I mean, um, the sacrifices that our characters go through, they're so pleased to go through because they have, you know, this this hope of shucking off the British cuff. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Being free. I know I got fancy there. Yeah, uh, and I immediately regret it. <laughs> so uh, they, you know, they, they were patriots, really, the way we think about patriotism in that era, just putting all their resources behind this war, um, including their own uh, labor and food. Did Washington rely on the local community so much? At one point in time, he, according to the book, he requests 50% of every family's grain. And that seems horrible to me. (laughs) Like, that's such a thing to request of people who already don't have much. Well, yeah. And and to request it kind of after it's too late to... For them to to plan plan for that. (laughs) Is that accurate or is that the author taking liberties? Um, There's some, a little bit of liberty there. So Mm -hmm. um, they're basically simplifying uh, some of the issues going on. So this area um, was described as a Tory labyrinth um, because you had people that were on both sides. Uh, it, it, you know, in general, we say for the Revolutionary War, and this is very broad in general, but about a third were for the British, third were for the American side, and a third wanted nothing to do with either side. And that was very true of this area. So you had a lot of Quakers, which tend to be pacifists in this area, and, and most of the farms in, in around here are, are Quakers. Um, so you have folks that don't want war. They don't want it in their backyard, and it shows up in their backyard. The, both the American and the British troops were going through this area of southeast Pennsylvania for months. So they're scouring through and, and you know taking, buying, whatever, the supplies they need. You get to Valley Forge and you know, supply chains are sort of breaking down a little bit. It's hard to find things. So he is sending troops far and wide to, to find supplies and bring them back in. Um, you know, there was a, a, we call it the Great Cow Chase or the Grand Forge, where troops were heading out into New Jersey to bring cattle back to Valley Forge. Um, you know, Jersey's now a 30-minute drive, you know, but right. you know, 20, 70 Monmouth miles is like or right so. there. Yeah. Um, You know, so it it was coming from all over the place. Was he demanding supplies? Um, In some cases, yes, to a point. He he always tried to purchase first. I shouldn't say he always. From what I know, he tried to purchase first. Um, And, uh, you know, one example was... uh, and I always get them backwards. So please forgive me. Hay or straw? He needed one of them. Um, and he's like, hey, you give me your stuff now. I'm going to pay this high price for it. If you don't give it to me, I'm going to take it and I'm going to give you this much lower price. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's, it starts getting down to he has 12,000 men here who need food to survive. So, you know, even if the locals don't want to sell it. He, he wants to pay. He wants to do the right thing, but he can't let these guys literally starve to death. The other side of that is if the Americans don't get their hands on it, you know, paying for it or commandeering it, the British are going to take it. And so now your enemy yes. has it and it's making them stronger and they're taking supplies that you can't get. Um, so he was kind zero of in a sum game. Yeah, he was in a tough spot where he needed to make decisions of, you know, try to do the right thing first. Um, you know, but they're paying with continental scripts sometimes, which isn't worth a whole lot. The right. British are paying with um, silver and gold, which, you know, has an intrinsic value no matter what happens to the markets. So it, it, it was it was tough. You definitely had patriots around here that were like, yes, go America, the whole deal. And you had folks that are like, go British. And you had other ones like, please just go away. Um, so it, it, was, it was very much a mixed bag. <laughs> I really that might be like a good yeah, go, go America go, go British, British go, go away. away that's like the episode title yeah. thank you <laughs> um Jen I'll 
Uh, I'll give you. A, I'm sorry. I've, no, I've, you are. No need to apologize. You are having. A, we are having a conversation, and that's that true. that is what this is. We. It would be very boring if I were to just ask you a question and then not respond. Have no one respond to it. Um, Meanwhile, she went to all this work to create these questions, um, and I am ignoring. We her. are talking exactly about what we should be talking about. Um, I guess speaking of George, um, and we know from the book that that Martha Washington came to join them um kate is making me a face because she is in the part of a book uh she hasn't finished it yet actually <gasps> i can't believe you just ran like you that. on blast um anyway they're uh they're kind of uh controversial figures and in, in, uh <laughs> we don't need to discuss in it. the way that yes uh he's a good leader yes she uh, martha washington is is portrayed as someone who's very kind and generous but they're also asking a lot of the community um whether it's bought from supplies or whether it's martha asking for a million eggs to make this huge cake um and uh, and we also know that uh they uh were huge slave owners <laughs> at the time these are all things that like the reason jen's laughing is because i struggle very deeply mm-hmm. with the concept of putting respect on the name so to speak of somebody who owned other human beings for free labor. And additionally, Washington uh, got quite a bit of free label labor from the camp followers. Um, yeah, that seems to be your main beef. Listen, it really this makes This idea me of the camp followers who are, are there um, to kind of uh, play support roles, and, and maybe you can go into the role of the camp followers as well um but you know women and children and other who are there you know helping the army mending things cooking things like these are very important jobs if you have an army to feed uh giving comfort they um you know the comforts of home it's like a disney movie where the kids have enjoyment and so do the adults um (laughs) anyway and it really i think in many ways, keeps the army together and functioning. And Washington dismisses them in one of his writings uh, as shrill, amongst other words. (laughs) And um, he talks about them being like of a lower class. Meanwhile, Martha comes in and does the exact same labor for him with the help of slaves. I'm sorry, with the help of enslaved people. We're trying. Um, And... (laughs) It just really grinds my gears, and I'm sort of a detractor, I suppose, is the point uh, about the mythos and sort of deification of George Washington. I really think that there's a lot to criticize, and we don't often hear those criticisms. However, the question that we have for you uh, (laughs) is, as you were reading this book, I know, I'm sorry, listen, it makes me spicy every time. Here's a question. Uh, We're going to go off for five minutes on a tirade. Okay, no, uh, (laughs) I I, I, I want to kind of address, because I I, I totally get what you're saying um, with Washington and Martha. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Growing up, I have to be honest, I, I hated colonial history. Mm. I was like, I want to know about the Native Americans that were here. I want to mm. know about the people that were actually here, not the people that came over and claimed they found something that you know other people were already living in for thousands of years. Um, moving out here and learning the history again and learning 
these names that we tend to put up on pedestals as human beings makes me appreciate it more. Um, and and I, you realize that they are not perfect people. And, and you know, you, again, you put them up on the pedestals, you slap them on money, and you automatically assume that they are perfect and they are not. And, you know, we look at them through our, our lens of modern times. And sometimes you and, and we definitely know, like, you do not enslave people now. Like, that is not how you behave. Um, that is completely unacceptable. Back then, there were some people that thought that and other people who did not. And, and, right. and so you, you, it's hard to kind of remove our, our biases to look at what their biases were and understand where they're coming from um, as far as how they were behaving. Uh, a lot of Virginia landowners... All- yeah, so we're sorry. we're actually so we're all products of our environment. environment. Go ahead, yeah. the Virginia yeah. landowners. Um, I'm so sorry. Uh, they, they a lot of them were actually quite poor, except mm. for their enslaved um, population, and mm-hmm. that's where their money was, um, which is so like crazy to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, so here we we do try to touch on that. We are not shying away from it, um, and I think telling those stories. You know, some people are like, oh, you know, we need to tell those stories. Other people are like, don't tell the stories. And some are like, you know, somewhere in between. And I think there needs to be an in between. You need to tell those stories because you need to learn from history. You need to realize that people are human. They're working within their confines of what society says it should be like, whether it's right or wrong with our, our perspective now. Um, and so they, they, they're doing the best they can. And with Washington in particular, um, I, I struggle because I know like when he when he died, he released many of his slaves, but he also sent folks chasing after one of Martha's slaves that ran away. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's very, you know, this weird dichotomy of like, you know, are, are you anti-slavery? Are you pro-slavery? Where where are you? And mm-hmm. I, I think he was struggling with that, too. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the things that he does well is he understands how to motivate people and and be a leader um, that they needed here at Valley Forge. And so for those things, I'd say, cool, put him up on the pedestal, good leadership skills, awesome. The other things, he was human and and you need to take it with a grain of salt and um, learn from it and not repeat it. Yeah, that is really what everybody should take away. Let's well, just not repeat yeah, those it's, mistakes. It's it's complicated, and I, I think studying those highs and lows of a person uh, makes only serves to make them more human and more relatable instead of this kind of other deified creature that isn't that's on money. I you know I hadn't yeah. even thought about that, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's um, not black and white. It's it's very it's, there's a lot of shades of gray. <laughs> yeah, and I think it speaks to how hard it is when you have this personal wealth and privilege to get to consciously give that up in your own lifetime you know it's like you know he martha was one of the wealthiest uh largest you know slave owners in the colonies when they married and to to kind of wrestle with this topic of like well people are telling me in like because people in his own lifetime were talking about how slavery was john adams immoral um hamilton (laughs) one of his good friends um thank you does anybody else hear the word hamilton like every time constantly um (laughs) um, but yeah so it's not like he was totally ignorant to this kind of moral issue um and you're right he i think in his will freed all of his personal 
you know, slaves, but then that doesn't... Even some of that is, you know, you kind of get, you hear both sides from it. You don't, you know, did he free them because he thought they should be free? Did he free them because he was concerned about a revolt and, you know, issues with that? Again, more gray area where it is not straight one way or the other. I think one historian that I read um, had this really excellent point where he appeared to be very concerned about his own position in the historical record. And, you know, history has his eyes on oh, you. Oh, he being Washington. Washington. Sorry, yeah. I thought you meant the historian. No, the sorry. <laughs> yeah, it made sense in my head. Uh, Washington was someone who even while he was alive knew that, like, this is history being made. Um, and so I need to be conscious of the kind of record and legacy that I'm going to leave. And so they use that as an argument to say like, well, he he knew that slavery was wrong, but it's hard to give up something that you are benefiting so greatly from. Well, additionally, in the society that he was operating, there were laws that would prevent him from just being like, and all my slaves are free now. Well, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and like, even if, if they were was... freed, it doesn't mean they wouldn't get recaptured. So, oh, yeah. you know, you could, a lot of, we all and know. They could go somewhere else. And who's to say mm-hmm. that someone else doesn't recapture them and treat them worse? Exactly. Yeah. You have to remember that they're individuals, but they're also part of an entire system. So, yeah. So, yeah. it's, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> It is probably always, anytime somebody brings up George Washington, I will probably always be like, well, here's something to think of. (laughs) I just can't help myself. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right. And your point is well taken that these are human beings uh, who are going to be flawed and have foibles. And that only makes them more interesting Mm -hmm. as opposed to easily dismissible. And going back to the whole, um, what his historical legacy will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, an interesting thing is his letters to Martha. Um, mm. They do not exist because she was told to burn them um, because he did not want that being public knowledge. He wanted to yeah. keep that private. Um, you know, so there, there's little bits and pieces, you know, so he, he, he did to a point kind of curate what went out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I think valued his privacy, um, yeah. you know, like John Adams and Abigail Adams, we have more of their letters out there. Cause they, yeah. they were just love birds telling everybody about it. Um, <laughs> but it's really funny to some of those it's letters. It's funny to think about it in that context of like, exhibitionists <laughs> like i want everyone to know <laughs> yeah they weren't exhibitionists per se but you know their, their letters are out there um right. george and martha kind of wanted to keep that side a, a bit more personal and and yeah. kind of their own, own thing so that's sweet um, you know, i also love that she's a little chubby and short and i am chubby and short and so i like that a lot soft spot from her. right i do uh <laughs> yeah it's it's sweet and personal and the archivist in me is like no <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I, you get little bits and pieces here. And, and um, Washington, I, I don't have the exact quote memorized. I, I use it for school programs when we're talking about leadership. There was a quote that basically said, like, people are watching and you're mm-hmm. you're setting the example. So whatever you do, make sure you're doing it right to set the example mm-hmm. for other people that you may not see looking at you, but are. Um, yeah. So he was very aware of, of that and what that lens, you know, would look like. And to that end, I mean, when he was here, he tried to get out with the troops. He tried to set the example, even on battlefields. Sometimes you'd get a little bit too close to the action because he wanted to be out there with, with the Mm -hmm. troops. He wanted to be part of it and, and kind of show that solid um, with them and set the example, you know, granted in other parts of his life, again, looking back, we're like, not so great, but leadership wise, 
rocking it. <laughs> and if I were, you know, judging myself on every move I've ever taken, and if that were public knowledge that had mm-hmm. been printed out throughout history, I'm sure there are parts that I wish that I could be like, don't look at that part. Wasn't my best work. It's just part of being human. Ugh, how mortifying. Uh-huh. You mentioned, um, like, uh, upwards of 20 minutes ago now. Um <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. Why? Stop apologizing. Um, this is just me. I constantly put pins and things to come back to. Um, you mentioned that one of your big interests were uh, was Native American history. Um, and that's something that um, I think doesn't get talked about a lot um, with this war in particular. Uh, it's more talked about um, in regards to the French and Indian War slash Seven Years War was just the involvement of Native Americans or indigenous tribes um, in this war. Um, so what are there a kind of any fun facts or like interesting people that that you know from you know your work there that you would like to talk about? Oh, so I, I, I have to start with the caveat. I am very interested in Native American heritage, background, all that, but I don't know a whole lot. Yes, <laughs> um, I, I, know, I know a little bit here um, for Valley mm-hmm. Forge and that we did have um, Oneida and, and some mm-hmm. a couple other groups come down mm-hmm. to Valley Forge and, and mm-hmm. help. Um, it was a band of warriors. Uh, Polly Cooper is kind of the, the figure that yeah. gets tossed in there as a woman who traveled with them. Um, they, they came down and it's interesting. So, Many Native American nations sided with the British because the British said, you know, that that kind of Pittsburgh area, we're not going to expand past there. You can have all that land. And, uh, you know, they're kind of hedging their bets that the British are going to hold to that. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the Americans are making no such promises. So right. there, there's been, were a few things along the way that made siding with the British seem a little bit more reasonable. But this particular group um, of Oneida and, and uh, a couple other tribes did come down and it ended up fracturing fra- yeah. <laughs> their, their nation. They end mm-hmm. up having to leave to go protect their homes, which were being attacked by right. other Native American groups because they saw them as siding with the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was pretty controversial and, and kind of a big deal, particularly to the, the Native American um, nation that they were involved in, that they came down here. Yeah, uh, their big thing here was Barren Hill. Uh, there was a kind of a, they scouted out an area and saw the British were going to attack and were able to um, make it uh, a little bit more of a fair fight. So mm-hmm. it, 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 they, they did good while they were here, but again, they had to leave because they were being attacked by other other um, groups who saw them as siding with the enemy. If you Um, were to say roughly how long they were present at Valley Forge, what times would you give that? Oh, honestly, I don't know exactly. I know they were here by May. It Mm. may have only been a month or so um, before Mm. they had to head back because, you know, they needed to protect their families. That's like its own complicated story in and of itself. It is. It it would be so interesting to look into it. Yeah. Oh, I, I wish are, I knew more about it. <laughs> they're Western New York, right? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's I a very think, rich land. Um, I, from my knowledge of it, they they sent kind of a, a party of of you know continental officers to go kind of recruit from these um, tribes, and yeah, they went up to kind of central New York. Um, at Oneida, that's central New York. I think the other one was Tuscarora. I want to say. Um, yeah. Um, and for them to, as you said, side with 
the the Continental Army over, you know, the British Army, I'm sure every tribe was kind of in their own heads about which, you know, what is going to be the fate of our people um, with this war, because, you know, they aren't uh, on, they aren't a monolith. They don't all think, you know, the same. Um, famously in, you know, the, the French and Indian War, they were kind of split 50-50 almost over, like, which side they supported. And this is all because, not they not that they necessarily subscribe to any political, you know, issue on our end, but more like, how is this going to impact our people? Right. Um, and it's very, you know, what you say about the British having, well, you know, this kind of understanding that we'll, we'll stay on this side, you know, and then you can have the rest of the country. That's very... As well as treaties like they had mm-hmm. pieces of paper to look at and be like yeah. this is the promise it's i wonder what how that would have actually played out <laughs> if uh <laughs> and, and those walked. treaties are i mean are, there's there's so many flaws with the treaties yeah. um mm-hmm. you know we're you you hope there was an understanding you don't know how well the different languages were mm-hmm. uh, understood between the groups making the treaties um and then you know, just here in Pennsylvania, you had William Penn, who came in, yeah. made treaties with Native Americans, and then mm-hmm. his son came in mm-hmm. and started making, started going back on some of those treaties. He made treaties yes. with groups that didn't actually reside on the land that <sighs> they were making a treaty for. Um, so, there, it, you know, there, there was some shadiness going yeah. on, and I think some of it was goodwill, some of it w- mm-hmm. was not. But, you know, you're, you got two different cultures with very different ways of you know, owning property and in languages and, you know, just value systems and stuff like that. So how, how much was really understood by both sides and Mm -hmm. what that really meant to them? um, Absolutely. Once again, as historians, we are pulling up to this idea of trying to understand people within the societies that they lived, rather than you know, what we think we can assume from the 21st century. And what an interesting mental mental practice that is. I, I think it's something that um, makes history very much more interesting than the paper doll figures we come across sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that was... No. I'm off the soapbox again. And I think it's good to remember that, you know, stuff like this has been happening for forever mm-hmm. <laughs> throughout history all over the world it is not just you know unique to america it, it it's it's something that's been going on for for a very long time so i i hope i'm not coming off as you know bashing the the founding fathers or anything because they're they, again, oh they're, they're no just i think part the only the, person who danced and, with that was me yes okay <laughs> i think if your boss is listening she's in the clear <laughs> i can i can just lines <laughs> now nps is canceled no um <laughs> no don't internet strangers we have we have very good uh listeners yeah our historically and they're I the think, kindest people I, I think it's good to i mean you got to look at all sides of the story and, and i think mm-hmm. i mean it, you being involved with the filming that we had here you, you saw that we were trying to represent the women the black soldiers Absolutely. the native americans so all present. the groups that were here yeah and, and sometimes you get people that come in and they may say something like you know, before race, before history gets erased, or um, you, know, you know, trying to change history, they'll use terms like that. And mm-hmm. I, I've, I've struggled um, over the last couple of years trying to find an analogy that would kind of make it make more sense. And I don't know that this is perfect, so bear with me on this. Mm-hmm. Imagine, you know, in your house, right? You got mom, dad, 
uh, kids and someone wants to document everything that happened in the life of your family for one day, but the husband is the only person that gets to tell the story. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get a full picture. Now we're finally going back and asking the wife and the kids what happened in their day for their perspective. So it's not taking away from the husband's perspective. It's adding to it and giving us a much fuller picture. And I mm-hmm. think that's where we're moving to now um, as a society is we want to know the full picture. We know this perspective. We want to hear the rest of it. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, they may contradict each other occasionally. And, and that's OK. You know, you're going to mm-hmm. learn from them. You're going to, you know, pick and choose their, you know, everyone has their biases when they tell their stories. So getting more sides helps you to eliminate those biases and figure out what really happened and, and know that, you know, better understand where they're coming from and, and, you know, that empathy that goes along with it. Yeah, I think we are both, um, both mentally and physically fist pumping to this. Like this is exactly, yes, it's so, it's so right. Um, and cause we have, we have the story of, as you say, the father, like we have those written accounts and we've been studying what they've been doing for generations. Um, and that's not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or so. if it is, it's certainly not giving us the full bounty of what we could be learning. Exactly. So now we're taking that opportunity to say, well, what else is there? And I think for for all the you know historical flaws that might happen in in this book that we've been reading, um, <laughs> to tie it back into, uh, in the book, sorry, such an elegant segue. Um, I think that is from uh from my experience with this book series like that was what drew me in so close to this series was this idea of okay we've heard you know i've i've learned in school what you know george washington was doing what the founding fathers were doing what was martha doing what was what were the washerwomen doing and the camp followers um and this these books make an attempt to kind of address that dearth of information um, and and explore that area of like what was daily life like, even if it gets it wrong. Sometimes it's still placing value on their stories. Yeah. Um, and that's what I really love. So. So kind of I'm sorry, I'm going to storytell. I hope that's OK. Um, one one story. OK, good. One story that I, I like that we recently kind of uncovered Um was of an enslaved woman in Washington's headquarters, Hannah Till. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she was a pastry chef. And we recently, or some folks recently found um, baptismal records for her son. You, you kind of go back to the... And <gasps> oh, how cool. You figured out the kid was born in Washington... During this encampment, uh-huh. she lived and worked in Washington's headquarters, the best we know. So now you're adding to the story. You have, you know, the, the Army, you know, Washington and Hamilton and his aides kind of working in this small house. Mm-hmm. You know, there were enslaved people there. You know, there were servants who were not enslaved, but working for them. And now there's a newborn in the house. Yeah. Yes. Um, and we do think that her older child might have been there, too. So now you have kids in this house and it mm-hmm. changes the feel of the building. It, you know, you, it's, it's a war headquarters, but it's also a family home. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so it, it, you know, it, I think it just adds to the, to the tapestry and uh, one of the kind of going back to the myths that you asked previously, um, you know, a lot of people assume it's just 
the white guys here. And I, I say that mm-hmm. um, I've gotten in trouble from, from a visitor once for just saying that. But, you know, when we think Revolutionary War soldiers, we do tend to think predominantly white people. There were black soldiers here. Some were here mm-hmm. from because they wanted to be here. Some were here um, as enslaved people hoping for freedom. Some were here serving in place of their, their owner. Um, there were Native Americans here. There mm-hmm. were mixed race people here. There were women and children here. And um and I mean within camp. So you had mentioned camp followers earlier, yeah. and that gets a little a little sticky. So you kind of have, um, I like to break them up into two different groups. You have the camp followers that are kind of think of like the army contractors now, right? Those are the ones that are outside of camp. They're mm-hmm. fixing wagons. They're, they're providing some service to the army that's needed, and they're following the army around. And then you have the other group who are typically wives of poor soldiers who enlist and they can't make ends meet. So they are homeless and they're following the army. And those are the ones that would be in camp. Mm. Um, Washington did call them a clog on every movement. Wasn't super thrilled with them. Um, And you think about it, he's busy trying to run a war. He's struggling to feed his soldiers. And now he has women and kids running around. And he's like, what am I going to do with you guys? And these women, you know, think about being poor and you're traveling with everything you own on your back. Um, you know, you're following the army, you're getting muddy, you're getting messy, you are not looking like a proper lady, you know, you're kind of breaking all of societal rules right now, um, and, and you're homeless. Um, so Washington did kick out all the um, working ladies from camp. So here, mm-hmm. you were family, right? You you were, <laughs> sorry, I know, you have to, always have to skate around that one a little bit. So, second grade, second grade. <laughs> so um, you, here, you were, you know, mom, daughter, sister of a soldier. And so you could have yeah. 12 men in a hut plus a family living in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Washington did and realize... those huts are quite small. They're, they're 14 by 16. Um, so not huge, mm-hmm. but you put, you know, 16 people in there. It gets pretty crowded. Um, <laughs> I literally think that's the size of, like, my bedroom. Yeah. 14 by yeah. 16, yeah. roughly the size of my bedroom. <laughs> and if you have 12 soldiers plus a family in yeah. that one and room... And a fireplace. That's a lot. I would... I would not be sleeping. Yeah. But I mean, they're, they're going to make it work, you know, because what else are they mm-hmm. going to do? What is, what's their exactly. choice? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so wow. there's no Ramada. <laughs> the casino down the street. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. We'll just we'll just hike off to yeah. that. No biggie. Um, I mean, Washington realized he needs to give these ladies opportunities. Right. He he, he is giving them a, a ration of food. Um, but that's where the washerwomen come in. And and. They were supposedly able to set their own rates, but there are some reports of generals being like, hey, your rate is too high for, you know, so you need to lower mm-hmm. it. Otherwise, we're looking for a reason to get you out of camp. So these women were able to make yeah. some money, sometimes um, from individual soldiers, sometimes like doing laundry for the whole brigade. Um, you know, I'm sure it was hard work. It's winter. They're they're dealing with soap that isn't nice to the skin and, and you know, all that fun stuff. But it's a way for them to make ends meet. It's an opportunity. And eventually Washington realized, and I, I, I say it sort mm-hmm. of sarcastically, but not sarcastically, that women can do more than wash clothes, um, <laughs> which I think is important to remember and and said, hey, how about you guys do the nursing? Because a lot of nursing was being done by yeah. other soldiers and other groups and, and whatnot. And you know, back in the day when people don't know how diseases are spread, doing the nursing is kind of like, ooh, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, but eventually the women stepped up 
Yeah, and they did it, and and um, it's risky. You know, it, it meant a possibly a larger ration of food. Um, there's some debates over you know how much each group was getting, but um, mm-hmm. you know they they were getting paid for in you know possibly more food. So again, just a way for them to kind of make ends meet. Um, you know, they're dependent on the army, but they're giving back to the army too. So they're not just taking from it; they're giving. So it becomes more of a, a partnership. Um, you know, but it it, it mm-hmm. took a little while to get to that point. Um, and, and both armies had women, you know, so the British had women coming over mm-hmm. from, from England or they're finding them in America. And so both both sides were, were dealing with it. I don't know as well um, about how the British were, were handling the, the ladies in camp. But um, here at Valley Forge, um, you know, there was some, mm-hmm. some progress being made and it may not be perfect. Um, but again, it's, it's some opportunity, which is better than. Well, yeah. and that labor and that relationship, I think, is so important. Um, I think a lot of unsung labor was done by women in that era. Just like, you know, like there's this conversation on the Internet happening today about. Um... Oh, gosh. What are, you, are you looking for like weaponized incompetence? Yeah, or something sort of like that. Like, <laughs> where women end up doing the majority yeah. of tasks in a household. Just like home cares. Yeah, exactly, because women are socialized to do mm-hmm. that kind of work. And, and you know, like, it's a discussion that we're still having today yeah. um, about the Recognizing use of work of women. the work of women as work. Thank you for summarizing. Yes, that's exactly, yes. Um, so anyways... Uh, <laughs> Again, we seem to have just snuck right up onto my soapbox. Um, I w- well, and, and I put a pin in, in another thing that you said, which was nurses, uh, which is a whole other thing that's talked about in the book. And, uh, and I know at Valley Forge, this is an important thing that happened. Uh, we have smallpox inoculation. Do you want to yeah, yeah. tell us about um, that? <laughs> so that that's a, a fun one. Um, do you want me to go into mm-hmm. the details of how that works? Yes. Please, because the book does, <laughs> and like, it's yes, so please. gross. <laughs> um, <laughs> please tell us the grossest thing you know. Yeah. I'm listening. <laughs> so basically, someone would get smallpox, per- preferably mm-hmm. a very mild case of smallpox. And when you get smallpox, you get like little blister sores. And sometimes they yeah. ooze, and they would come and take some of that ooze with a little blade, and they would basically cut someone else and shove that ooze into that cut. Um, so you're you're giving yeah. the n- next person hopefully a mild case of smallpox. You are going to get sick because you are dealing with live viruses. Um, but hopefully mm-hmm. it's very mild. You recover and now you have immunity. And, you know, I, 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 given the current climate with COVID and stuff like that, it's always interesting <laughs> to draw parallels, um, you know. We we got some folks that would come in and be like, oh, what would Washington think about this? I'm like, he'd probably be on board with it because he was inoculating everyone coming into camp. You know, he he knew he needed to protect his troops to be able to continue with the war. Um, Luckily, we have progressed in our Mm -hmm. vaccinations and inoculations. We no longer use live viruses, at least for COVID and and all that. And we don't have to lance somebody and Mm -hmm. all that fun stuff. But I mean, the science, the basics for yeah. the science or the basis for the science that makes the vaccines that we use now were around back then. And Washington was all on board for for using them um, to keep his troops. Yeah. And he probably saved countless lives. I think something uh-huh. we forget about um, and I am touching a little bit on, you know, my own journey with health and um the current climate as you I won't go into detail but um, <laughs> he saved 
countless lives. We take for granted these diseases of the past that they weren't that big of a deal. Uh, People are very quick to dismiss things as it was just a bad cold. But like smallpox killed nations Mm -hmm. of people. I I mean, famously uh, ravaged the indigenous (laughs) population here. And and, Um, I mean, they they didn't they didn't know to wash hands. They didn't have gloves. mm -hmm. They didn't they just didn't know the stuff that we take so much for granted that makes us um, much more able to withstand um, the the different germs and stuff. But even with the smallpox inoculation, there were other diseases going through camp a lot of times due to poor sanitation. Mm-hmm. So again, not washing hands and, and, or maybe eating in your hut and critters are now coming into your hut carrying diseases. So um, about 2000 men did die of diseases, just not smallpox um, here at Valley. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But because of that inoculation practice, I mean, it, it, it was rather cutting edge for its time. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. I know. Um, Jen, as an archivist, has told me that one of the threats that archivists face in their job is going through things like family Bibles, where often you'll find, well, often. I'm so curious uh, what you're going to say, because I have no idea where you're going with this. (laughs) Uh, People would stick smallpox blisters. In there? I did Yeah, like they would have like little envelopes. News to me. Oh, I don't know where you learned this. Listen, everybody, it is possible this is fake news. I don't know. Uh, I also, I really would have said it came from you, but I mean, somebody else who's listening. Old Bibles is a good chance it's from me, but um, yeah, <laughs> I, wor- I work at a, at a, a Christian university archive, so that's, we have a lot of old Bibles. Um, but anyway, so you would find things that would have potential dangers like there are definitely biohazards in museum collections and archives for sure definitely like the beaver hats of my beloved fur trade yeah Uh, often treated with mercury probably don't touch them and and taxidermy was often made with um arsenic yeah so lots of healthy stuff don't don't touch things a little frightening we've learned a lot over the years yes science is awesome (laughs) just another reason why you shouldn't touch things in museums yeah good oh (laughs) heavens to betsy um um, but speaking of, uh, like, uh, vaccine mandates and, and all that, um, uh, another big figure in Valley Forge is um, for uh, creating this kind of turning point in, in, the, in the army as a professional standing army was Baron von Steuben. So fun to say. <laughs> I will never get over his name. I love it so much. Baron von Steuben. Well, it, it, it's actually like... I, I, it's super long. There's like 16. Oh, yeah. Maybe not 16, but it is very, very long. So mm-hmm. you want to do the whole thing. Yeah. It'll take you probably 30 seconds yeah. to, to get it all out. <laughs> yes. I was... you think I'm not going to like learn to internalize that yeah. whole name and rattle it off for our, one of our episodes? <laughs> well, I was just rewatching the the visitor uh, center video this morning and listening to Laura Linney like rattle off all like five or six names <laughs> that he has is just incredible. Um, but yeah, one of the like major things he did was to just come in and say, hey, this is how you should a drill like that's an important thing, just like, you know, practicing shooting and reloading and, and marching all but and all that. But uh, another huge part of professionalizing the army is professionalizing the way they camp. Um, and so like digging latrines, 
<laughs> was a huge part of that. And yeah, so what, let's I talk kinda, about Baron von Steumann. Yeah, I kind of look at the army as they're coming into Valley Forge as the army from Virginia, the army from Pennsylvania, the army from New York, right? They're kind of mm-hmm. doing things a little bit differently um, depending on which which army you're part of. And Steuben came in and really made it the U.S. Army, um, gave you that unified mm-hmm. training. So this is considered by some to be the birthplace of the American Army. Um, and along with that training, again, not just firing weapons and, and learning how to walk the same speed, um, you know, when you're marching in a line and stuff like that was really pushing the the sanitation side of things. Washington tried, but because each little group was kind of following their own rules, he, he struggled a little bit. Um, I mean, at one point, it became a whippable offense not to use the latrines because so many folks were just, oh, middle of the night, I got to go. Let me, I don't want to walk way over there in the rain. Um, so, you know, he, he was struggling, but I think Stoyven helped kind of mm-hmm. make it a little... I don't want to say legitimize it, but make it a little bit more on the forefront. And so everyone's on the same book about everything and and not mm. trying to be, um, you know, doing their own things. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he's, he's a fun guy. I mean, just him getting here mm-hmm. is kind of this crazy story of, uh, you know, being out of work, looking for a job, ending up here and then writing the what we call the blue book, basically a training manual that is still used by the American army now. So like this out of work Prussian guy, says, hey, send me to America, and he ends up doing something pretty awesome, mm-hmm. um, which is cool. <laughs> yeah, a lot of what happened at Valley Forge reaches forward, especially through our armed forces, for yeah. 200 years. Um, you know, not only this book, not only the inoculations, but also, you know, like, what is soldiers work? And how do we keep ourselves together? And, you know, like, it, it's, I mean, things that affected my grandfather, who went was in the Korean War, uh, were established way back in 1777. And it was just so fascinating to me to have that framework for, you know, our armed forces. Mm. Um Sorry, I just get really excited about it. It's yeah, so cool to me. And, and it's cool that it um, kind of started yeah. here, um, which is neat. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. you are, literally <laughs> King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. Yes. I love that name also, by the mm-hmm. way. I bet you Baron von Steuben loved it as well. Yeah. Was that there? I What's the, I don't know what the history of the name King of Prussia is. Neither do I. So what I have heard is there, there was a place called King of Prussia Tavern. Uh-huh. Um, and it was here before Steuben was here. Gotcha. I think you had a lot of Prussians in this area. They might have been, you know, saw it basically as a um, PR type thing, publicity stunt. Like, oh, let's, these, these guys like the king of Prussia. So let's name a tavern after him. Maybe I'll get more business. Um, <laughs> so that's the story I've heard that it was more just kind of a a, a, a marketing thing where they called it king of Prussia that's and amazing. the tavern be, then became the town name. And and, and here we are. <laughs> it had nothing to do yeah. with Steuben. <laughs> And sometimes that's how history goes. Yeah. It's just a fun little accident. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and I love things like that. It's It makes me feel like sometimes we're in a big gear and everything's working the way that it should. <laughs> we're um, getting metaphysical today yes, on the Ribbon Book Club. <laughs> yes. Um, we, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because we are getting to that hour mark. But I want to shift um, to talking about, um, and if you you know, have any opinions about this, but uh, these are kids, or these are books that are geared towards kids. Um, and 
you know, I'm sure you get a lot of field trips that come through um, and you were just talking about doing a, a story hour. And so what do you think as someone who professionally tells this history to children, what are some of the main um, points that you think are important? If you were to talk to someone who was writing, you know, if you were going to talk to the author who is writing this book now um, and give advice on like, if you want to, if you want kids to learn about this topic, here's the most important things that you should tell them. Uh, what would some of those things be? That, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> you know, we do get our, uh, authors sometimes calling, looking for information, doing research. And, and you know, the, this this book is is not supposed to be, you know, here's the truth of what happened. So this one has some creative liberties mm-hmm. with it. I, I think she, the, the, and I'm so sorry, I had to double check the, the author's name. Um, <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, that's McGregor. Why, that's why I, I didn't say it. Uh, Christiana Gregory. There we he go. Did, you know, again, kind of capturing the feeling of camp. Um, yes. You know, and, and I think that was really her goal to capture the feeling and, and make something that will get kids interested in it. And if, if that's her main goal, mm-hmm. she, I think she did great. Um, if she's really trying to yeah. be more straight line, here's the history there's there's places for improvement so again i I, my advice would kind of be different depending on what their main goal is um you know would it be Mm -hmm. nice if she kind of let up on the snow a little bit it didn't perpetuate some of the myths Mm -hmm. but you know it it sets Mm -hmm. that stage for like hey conditions weren't great if you said it was just raining um you know, I don't know that kids would be so like, oh, it's so miserable. You're like, yeah, it's just rain. You know, they might be living out in Seattle and they'd be mm-hmm. like, it rains all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> what are they complaining about? <laughs> um, <laughs> These people were little whiners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you, you toss in the snow and then it kind of evokes a different emotion. And and um, I think that was good for the purpose of her book. Um, okay. You know, if, yeah. if you're looking to be a little bit more historically accurate, I would say, you know, delve into those myths and and the things that were kind of always taught or not taught in school, but the things that we thought were true that may have been taught in school or you heard along the way or whatever. And and just double check those. Um, and cause sometimes the, the truth is more interesting. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, but it, 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 so I'm babbling a little bit. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. So it really, I think it just, it's okay. We can cut out the noise where you're like thinking. <laughs> Danny does that. He's amazing I, like that. So I'll don't know. you worry. Um, yeah. So just <laughs> try to go past those myths. Look at what mm-hmm. really happened. And it may take a little bit more uh, delving down and, and questioning some of the things that you thought you knew. Um, but again, if you're just trying to get the feeling out there and get people interested, I think it was, it was yeah. pretty good. It was on, on point. Yeah. I, I think what you say about like, what is your audience is very important. This is, is this is me asking this question because this is one of my soapboxes um, uh, is that I think so much of what we face today with this kind of distrust of this like new kind of history that's being done is that it does go against what we've been taught in schools. Um, and, you know, I studied history my whole school career, and a lot of that process was building on what I've learned before, but also breaking that down. <laughs> and yeah. um, it is a process to kind of 
take that new information in and rearrange in your mind what you learned before. I mean, I'm still doing that. Um, I'm still relearning myths, uh, relearning the truth behind myths that I've believed. I think one that I pointed out recently was that King Henry VIII apparently didn't write green sleeves. Like that was mind blowing to me. Um, (laughs) That's a different story. But um, I I do think that um, I, I would personally love for teachers and authors that are teaching children history to kind of try to find a way to be as accurate as they can while still, you know, as you say, capturing the spirit of what um, we're talking about. Because a lot of people have yeah. a hard time unlearning. <laughs> I think people think, I mean, history, it's it, modern history with the invention of TVs and newspapers and modern communications where we can document exactly what happened is, mm-hmm. is one thing. But where we don't have that, that you know, video to go refer to. Um, yeah. it's sort of like science. We are okay Mm -hmm. with science evolving and learning new information and adding to it Mm -hmm. and and changing theories and stuff like that. History is sort of the same thing. I mean, you're, you're, you think, you know, something and then you find a new document or you, you Mm -hmm. you know, someone comes up with a different perspective. And so it it is evolving. I mean, there's, there's sort of always this, this baseline, here's the truth. Um, But there's layers to add to it and, and it, it may change. So like, like science, history is something that does evolve, um, particularly the further back you get. Um, you know, you go way back mm-hmm. to, to you know, 10,000 years ago, you know, at the end of the Ice Age, what was going on with humanity? You know, it, it's it's constantly changing. And, you know, you, if you look at tom- yesterday, we have better documentation for it. But, you know, th- yeah, there, there's, mm. there's some... Beth, you don't know it, but you are hitting all my highlights. She loves yeah. the Ice Age. I really do. But yeah, so I mean, it freaks me out. I yeah, love it so I, much. I think you need to look at history as something that there's more to learn to it. What you think you know, what you know, what we do mm. know, couldn't be shaken up. And it doesn't mean that we're trying to change history. We're just trying to get a more accurate picture of it. And we're constantly working for yeah, more accurate picture. I mean, especially as an archivist and, and researcher, like. You want to get down to like what's what's the truth, and and it changes as you get more information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's very beautifully stated. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's the scientific method. It's a social science, but it is a science, certainly. Yeah. Well, and I think as we dedicate ourselves to being lifelong learners, which mm-hmm. I hope our listeners consider themselves, mm-hmm. you know, we are not pinpointing you know, the exact hard truth, and this is the truth forever. Mm -hmm. We have to give ourselves space for other people to join the conversation, new documentation to arise. Um, And so sometimes I think we do have to go back and relearn, unlearn, Mm -hmm. um, and just try and like fill in what details we weren't getting before. So it's an important part of being a lifelong learner. Um, I think there's a lot to consider there. And, and, um, and there are definitely some things that aren't aren't negotiable. Neg- negotiable, like we know what days battles happen. We know, you know, yeah. the, it's it's the smaller details of like everyday life about the, the mundane stuff that people weren't writing down. That um, mm-hmm. you know, as we find more of those more information out, those those things change mm-hmm. along the way. So usually the big things are, are fairly well documented. Getting more stories and more perspectives about the big things can kind of change uh, the the. I don't want to say change, enhance the story, but the the the, the little or um, day to day stuff that 
people didn't think to write down. I mean, think about all the things that we do now that we don't write down yeah. and people are going to make mm-hmm. um, inferences about 300 years from now and yes. then they'll find Twitter and be like, what was this? Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, One of the things that I also, man, we're just hitting all my highlights. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really am interested in historic cooking mm-hmm. and a lot of quote unquote recipes were not actually written down. Um, for example, um, we were learning about what Genghis Khan would eat and mm. people are like, oh yeah, he had salted wine and then they just moved on. <laughs> and I was like, wait, hold up. <laughs> like, on uh, there's questions. I have questions. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's really, it's so fascinating. And um, the things that, you know, weren't considered important just never got written down. Like, how much salt is in the wine? <laughs> anyway, we, I feel like- And I think sometimes that stuff gets written down later yeah. by like the next generation. Uh-huh. And, and so now you have this bias that comes in. So you, you had mentioned Martha and, and the cake and mm-hmm. getting all the eggs for the cake. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, we, we had a printed recipe of that cake and said, this is the cake that Martha made here. Mm-hmm. And then we started realizing that there's not really any evidence that she like, physically made this cake here um so you know it may okay, be because i've been so salty about this cake <laughs> yeah. I, so i'm th- sorry please it may be one of her recipes but it she may uh-huh. not have like physically made it for george's birthday so we gotcha. we, we still can publish the 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 recipe and say yeah. you know this may be from the time period it may have been something similar to this that was made but mm-hmm. martha may not have actually done the cooking um so mm. there, there's stuff like that where like where did that come from that that's what she did you know there might have been you know a list of things that were being bought but um, for for that day, perhaps they said, "Oh, we need this many eggs and this much flour, and it was like a ton of butter." Um, but oh my god, was she actually well, I doing the cooking? I couldn't even fathom it. Yeah. <laughs> was she? That's well. That's the other thing that I made a note of was like Martha's baking this yeah, cake. Yeah. Is it really Martha doing <laughs> you know, it? <laughs> we've already been at that point in time introduced to her the character of her enslaved cook Oni. I think is Oni her name, is which I think that, maybe I think that's a, a stand-in for Hannah Potts. Is what. what the so name Hannah the Till was the pastry. Hannah Till, sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Potts owned the house that Washington rented, so there, there. You got, gotcha. got the names. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 the way she was described, I suspect she might have been Hannah, but to be quite honest, mm-hmm. I, there are others in, in in this park that know more than me about the the staff that was yeah. at the house, so I, I can't say for sure. Um, there, there may have been an Oni. Sure. I, I just, I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's fair uh we even though i know you are our expert we do not demand perfection okay. uh, so don't worry you're doing great <laughs> i just want i want to relax you everything you're saying is perfect and right <laughs> so yeah don't worry about it uh no it was, it's, it was so interesting and the cake itself is so fascinating george uh in its excess and george washington's uh, famous eggnog recipe, Ooh. kind of shocking in its excess too. Is like, wow, George, how did you get anything done during Christmas? Because it has I've like ever, five gallons of liquor. Yeah, <laughs> anything I've ever learned about uh, alcohol consumption at that time just boggles my mind. <laughs> yeah, and you Goodness. think about it, if the water isn't clean and you might get sick from it. You know, a little bit of yeah. alcohol for whatever reason makes you not sick. There you yeah. go. Plus, that winter was cold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
40 degrees is too cold for me. I'm an indoor cat. (laughs) Yes. Um, So as we're starting to wrap up with our time, because I am worried we're going to, like, I'm sure we could talk to you until you have to leave at five (laughs) o'clock. But as we as we're wrapping up with our time, is there anything that Valley Forge uh, or the National Park Service are doing any sort of initiatives to get people out into the parks, maybe bring your book and see these sites. What would you like to tell people about this site? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, we, we have, I, me personally, I do several programs. Obviously, we have story time that's going to be running through mid-April. Hopefully, we'll bring it back next winter and, and do that. And that's geared towards the little ones. I also lead an art in the park program. So, you know, you come out to the park, bring your paints, bring your uh, make art inspired by by this park because you know a lot of people don't realize valley forge is 3500 acres you know it is not some small little thing Mm -hmm. we have forests we have meadows we have historical stuff so there's a variety of of things to make art from um as a park as the park service as a whole um we have the 250th anniversary of the declaration of independence coming up so that is a big thing that will be in um 2026 and then 2027 is the 250th anniversary of the winter encampment here um, going into uh, 2027, 2028. It is also the 50th anniversary of, I'm sorry, mm. uh, 2026 is the 50th anniversary of us becoming a national park. Um, so we were a state park previous to that. So we mm. have a, a couple big, you know, 250 for Declaration, 250 for Valley Forge, 50th for the park. Um, so a couple big things coming up. We're still figuring out what exactly our, our celebrations are going to look like. But no, um, we're working on that uh park services is uh, as a whole has gotten some extra funding for for some of those projects so that's a a stay tuned and hopefully we'll have some some Mm -hmm. cool things happening um you know yearly we have uh junior ranger day in in april we have our march out event on around june 19th this year it's going to be june 17th so it falls on that saturday um i run a homeschool day uh that it should be sometime in early october we have our march in event, which marks the day the Army marched into Valley Forge in December. So that's December 19th. And then we have Washington's birthday celebration. So we have some cool. kind of regular things going on year round, um, some little programs in between. Uh, usually in the fall, we do campfire talks. Um, they would be on a Saturday night. It, you know, that's one of those you got to double check um, to see what, what we have going on and when. But um, there's, there's some cool stuff there and lots of opportunities for different types of learners, different age groups. Um, you know, if you're not necessarily into the history stuff, but you're into the art. We got that, you know, like we got it all. So hopefully something to keep everyone mm. occupied. Yeah. That's fantastic. This is my own personal question. Um, how handicap accessible do you consider Valley Forge to be? Oh, that, um, the visitor center. I mean, we, it's, it's too, the main part of the visitor center is on one floor to get to our okay. theater. You do need to go up an elevator, which we have. Um, the encampment, so most of the park, there's a drive that you can do. Um, so you can, you know, as long as you're able to get in and out of a car, you're okay. If you can't get in and out of a car, we do have an audio tour that you can listen to. Um, so you can, you know, a lot of times you can park in the parking lot, see the site and getting information. The big exception to that is going to be Washington's headquarters. Um, the house, mm-hmm. there's a little drop-off area at the bottom of a hill, um, but and there's a little bit of a walk to get to Washington's headquarters, including a ramp to get down to it. But once you get to headquarters, because the house is 
70 to 80 percent original, um, it has stairs to get inside. So getting inside, um, if you have mobility issues, may be difficult. There's one entrance that has railings. Um, but we do have a book that you can look at with pictures of inside the house. So you can be outside of it kind of figuring out, you know, get the lay of the land and look at your book. Um, so, it, you know, it's not flat. There's not moving sidewalks everywhere, but we do what we can to try to make it accessible. Um, <laughs> right. Even our theater, we um, are getting some new yeah. tech in there where if you are hearing impaired or, you know, you have a hearing aid, you might we might be able to broadcast directly to um, our visitor center. We got new exhibits. Um, cool. There, there, we, we don't really have Braille or anything, but we are working on um, kind of having an audio description that will lead you through. So if you are visually impaired, um, mm. there's an option for you. So we're working on it. Um, it not, not perfect, but we're working on it. <laughs> we're getting there. Hey, I appreciate the amount of things that you've already said that are taking care of people. Uh, I used to be completely able-bodied and I never thought about these yeah. things. Yeah. And now that I am a you know, part-time wheelchair user. It's something I'm very conscious of. So mm -hmm. I appreciate uh, how much effort the National Park Service puts into making these parks available to every type of citizen. Mm -hmm. So kudos to you guys. Uh, I think that's super and impressive. It's something we we, we want to do better on. I mean, I, I think we're doing okay, but like there's always room for improvement with universal design and stuff like that. And so um, there's well, and we're learning more about universal design, too. Yeah. Like, as a society, there was a couple years ago that there was this half ramp, half staircase picture that was going around the internet. Everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is such a great design idea. And then people who were actually educated in universal design were like, actually, there's like 10,000 <laughs> problems with this. Huh? People will die on these stairs. <laughs> Uh, so no, yeah, I think it's great how much we are all still learning and mm -hmm. we are all dedicated to being universal and uh, lifelong learners. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that goes with the same themes that we've been talking about, about constantly trying to take in new information and, and expand your view on everything. Um, is there any other last things that like we didn't ask you that you wanted that you're dying to tell us about? I don't really think so. I, I feel like I've Probably That's went totally fine. Than wanted. Maybe gave a little bit too much opinion, but hopefully we got the basic facts in there. And, no, and, uh, it was perfect. If anybody gave too much opinion, it was definitely me. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> both of you need to settle down. We're, it's fine. You and I are going to be in an apology off here in a couple <laughs> minutes. To, we're going to do some therapy about this. Your, your opinions are valid. Um, no, it was such such a pure delight to talk to you. I'm so I'm so um glad that you agreed to talk to us um i think this conversation was really interesting to me personally and i i think that um okay. i hope our listeners will also feel the same way um it was a pure delight and a pleasure <laughs> thank you so much for giving of your time and uh gosh thank you this has been great thank you thank you for having me i'm glad that we connected with me and i was able to do it so thank you yeah uh, everyone, go visit Valley Forge National Historical Park. Uh, it's a great site. They've got great people. And yeah. Oh, check out their lot. website also. There is a lot of great stuff on the website. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so if getting to King of Prussia, Pennsylvania is not an option, uh, please check out the website. Uh, Beth, would you tell me what the website title is? Again? So it's www.nps for National Park Service.gov for government and then forward slash VA 
F-O. So the first two letters of Valley, first two letters of Forge. So www.nps.gov forward slash V-A-F-O. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, This has truly been a pleasure and I hope the rest of the day is lovely. Thank you guys. Hey, thanks for listening. We'd like to thank Erica Page for creating our amazing intro and outro music, Callie Charing for being the best research librarian we know, and the world's best editor, Danny Heck. Feel free to reach out to them with contact info in the description. 